Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley with a new recreation map you'll hear about later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages Oregonians to come out and experience the changing seasons, but also be well prepared for whatever winter brings, whether it's snow on the mountain passes or big tides at the coast. Okay, in today's episode, we're talking about hunting for Oregon's natural delicacies of the forest. We're visiting with a mushroom expert and forager about how to search for everything from chanterelles to lobsters, morels to hedgehogs. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, today we're lucky to be joined by Jordan Dodge. He leads mushroom hunting trips and is on the board of the Willamette Valley Mushroom Society. Jordan harvests and sells mushrooms commercially and is the owner and operator of Lone Oak Micro Farms in Salem. Jordan, thanks for joining us today to talk all things mushroom. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Zach. I'm excited to uh, talk mushrooms and and share my knowledge. (laughs) All right. So it's pretty obvious, you know, reading your bio and stuff like that, that you love everything related to fungi. Uh, you mentioned that you spend a lot of your free time not just hunting for mushrooms, but researching them and, and recording data as well. So what led to your love of mushrooms? Was it being a kid out in the forest and finding all these interesting stuff? Or what about them is so interesting to you? So essentially how I got into it is I was hunting um, deer and elk with my dad in the Pacific Northwest. And I started seeing all these different mushrooms growing and I became really interested and I wanted to learn more about them. So I started to do a little bit of research and I picked up a couple of mushroom guides. I wasn't really confident in my abilities, so I didn't really pick very much to eat or anything. I just kind of observed and, and went about it that way for quite a few years until finally I decided, you know what, let's get more serious about this. So I joined a mushroom club and that really helped me a lot. And it helped develop the skills and uh, abilities that I have and really further developed my love and passion for fungi. Gotcha. Well, what was it that was so interesting about it? You know, presumably out there you got, you know, you got your rifle or your shotgun, you know, you're looking, you know, for, for deer and elk. But what kept drawing you down to the forest floor? Like, was it the, the, the colors or just the, the weird combination of what you were seeing? Or what kind of sparked that interest? Oh, yeah. You'd just see all these different, unique and really interesting mushrooms. You know, from the Amanita muscaria, you know, that like classic toadstool type mushroom where you know, it's got that red cap with the little white bits of the veil on the top. And it's very iconic and, and easy to see. And and um, a lot of people recognize this mushroom. And, and so it's, you know, things like that where you're like, wow, this is really cool. Like, how did this end up like this? And, you know, where, you know, and how does this grow in, in our environment? And, and what type of asso- associations does it have with, you know, trees and, and other plant species? 
Cool. Yeah. Well, there's there's so much going on there. So we'll get back to that in a little bit. I mean, the idea of this podcast is kind of to lay the groundwork for people to get into mushroom harvesting on public land. One of the things I really love about national forests and is sometimes overlooked is that, you know, you can go out there, harvest up to a gallon of mushrooms in most places for personal use without getting a permit. You know, there's other rules related to timberlands and rules if you're planning to sell the mushrooms, but we're going to keep it simple. So, Jordan, my first question centers on how do most people go about mushroom hunting? Are they going out on hiking trails? Are they driving forest service roads? What's the typical way and maybe the best way to actually get out and do it yourself? Like if you want to get out in the forest, how would you do it? Usually I, I drive forest service roads and and when I'm doing that, I'm looking for specific habitats that I know where mushrooms grow. So I'm looking for uh, an older forest, you know, but first and foremost, I, I want it to be easy walking. I don't want to be beating brush and crawling on my hands and knees. You know, <laughs> I want to be able to find the mushrooms. I want to be able to cover some ground. So, you know, the age of the forest, is it walkable? And, and I just drive around and into in the coast range and in the cascade range and and look for spots and areas that you know looks like the correct habitat that i can find mushrooms that i'm interested in in collecting gotcha so you're driving the forest service roads you know at the appropriate times of year and maybe you know you drive along there's a little pull out and you're like well that looks that looks promising so you kind of get out walk around for a while uh, you know, maybe it hits, maybe it doesn't. Then you get back in, drive a little farther. Is that kind of the way you typically do it? Yeah. You know, if I'm wanting to find a spot that's not getting a lot of foot traffic from other people, you know, that so I, I have, you know, kind of the first access to the mushrooms. So I tend to do that. But another good way to start kind of getting into it is hiking trails. A lot of hiking trails in the forests around that are very well maintained. So um, you can find a lot of fungal diversity growing along these trails, especially along the uh, rivers and creeks. So that's another good place to to kind of get out, stretch your legs and, and see what you can find. Well, that's that that's always struck me as been uh, being a favorite way to do mushroom hunting as like it, it being kind of a secondary thing. Like maybe you're out, you know, hiking along a creek or you're out like uh, harvesting ferns, which is something that I do. Uh, that time of year. And then you just keep an eye out for mushrooms. So it's like you can do multiple things at once. It's not just like only mushrooms or only hiking or only hunting. You can kind of combine all that stuff. You know, a lot of times when I go out in the woods, I'm not always mushroom hunting, but that's always kind of like a secondary kind of thing that I'm keeping an eye out for. I usually keep a, a bag or a small tackle box in my hiking pack just in case I find something I want to study. I can I can harvest it, collect it, take it home and do some research. Cool. Well, what kinds of mushrooms are you and other people typically going to target? I mean, I, I got to confess, the only mushrooms that I ever really pay attention to are chanterelles, you know, Oregon's official state mushroom, just because they're pretty obvious and it's it's hard to screw that up too much. I picked morels on my neighbor's property, but that's it. I But I know there's a a lot more out there. So, you know, I don't want you to give me like, a, you know, a total breakdown of every mushroom in Oregon, but what are, what are a handful of mushrooms that you typically target and what makes them stand out to you? Like, what do you like about them? Yeah. The, the typical mushrooms I, I harvest for myself to eat besides the chanterelle, obviously it's a, an amazing, delicious mushroom. Never pass that up, but, uh, I love morels. 
Morels are one of my favorite mushrooms. They just, the flavor, everything about them, I just love morels. And then I would probably say hedgehogs. That's another great mushroom. And that's this one's pretty much impossible to get wrong. It only has one non-edible lookalike, and it has gills where the hedgehog mushroom is a tooth fungi. So it's it's pretty much impossible to mess that up on the identification. And it's also a delicious mushroom. And then there's the, the porcini. This is a very prized mushroom for all over the world. And it's um, it grows in pretty much all over Oregon. You can find it from the coast all the way into central and eastern Oregon in the pine forests. So it, it grows everywhere. And when it's going, it's abundant. You can, you can really get into them. And it's a delicious mushroom, especially when you uh, dehydrate them. And then I'd probably go with the matsutake. That's another very, very highly sought after um, mushroom. There is some kind of controversy, you know, where uh, some people really guard and protect, you know, the areas they go pick these mushrooms. And, you know, there's a lot of laws and restrictions regarding that. So for personal use, you can only collect six matsutakis a day. And as soon as you harvest them, you have to cut them from the top of the cap down to the bottom of the stem. So that way it ruins any commercial resale value. Oh, wow. So it's, I mean, I know that it, that was true of, of some kinds of mushrooms, but matsutakis are, it's, it's that serious, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, a perfect matsutake can go upwards of $300 in Japan. So there's, you can make a lot of money harvesting this mushroom commercially. And um, especially in Oregon, we have a lot of good, good habitat for it, you know, from the shore pines on the coast to, you know, the, the pine forests in the, in the central and Eastern Oregon. They like that real sandy, sandy soil. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess I'd always thought that that was sort of reserved for uh, truffles, but you're saying there's, there's, there's some delicacies uh, out in the Oregon forest beyond just, just the truffles that I think got to be the most famous for, you know, being, you know, fetching crazy prices for them and stuff like that. Matsutake is probably right there just below truffles in Oregon for the, the top. Well, personally, do you have, do you have a, a, do you have a personal favorite for a combination of like taste and maybe abundance and like fun going out to find in the forest? Like, do you have one mushroom where you're like, Oh, I'm just having a good day when, when I come across these. Yeah, that would have to be the morel mushroom. When you get into a huge patch, it is just like, you know, the best day ever. <laughs> it's just so much fun picking these mushrooms, getting out. And especially, you know, after a forest fire, when you get into some burn morels, the, you can just get into just a huge abundance of these mushrooms. They just will produce heavily after a fire. And um, it's just great being able to get in there and, and pick those mushrooms. It's just, there's something about them. I, I just love these mushrooms. It's probably... <laughs> is one of the first mushrooms like uh, edible mushrooms really that I tried when it was while I was hiking the P- uh, Pacific Crest Trail and I ran into some people picking mushrooms they taught me about it and I brought some back to camp that night and cooked them up and I was just hooked <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, I'd had chanterelles. I loved chanterelles for a long time. And then my buddy just had some morels that happened to grow on his property. I'd never tried them before. They're kind of funny looking. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not like the first thing that if you come came across in the forest, I wouldn't naturally be like, yeah, I'm going to eat that because um, they're sort of weird looking. But then you cook them up and you're right, like the flavor and the texture. And it, there's just something different. Like they're just kind of that next level of taste. Um I, I, I think so. I, oh, yeah. I totally understand that. Well, I'm curious, you know, we're going to jump into kind of how to go out and do these mushrooms, um, etiquette, information, how to stay safe in a second. But I was really curious about the about the science of Pacific Northwest mushrooms. I know this has to be a super deep subject, but is there kind of a quick way to explain why Western Oregon has so many different and cool varieties? What's going on here that allows our area to be so rich in fungi. One of the major things is our geological features are mountain ranges. They run from north to south, and that's huge, and that's super important. That means we don't have any barriers stopping our trees from um, traveling north to south. So that means we have a huge, huge diversity in our forest compared to other countries where their mountain ranges run east to west, where you have vastly, you know, different types of forests where, you know, certain trees can no longer pass. Well, we don't have that problem here. And so it allows the diversity of, you know, tree species and the flora and fauna in our forests to be in good numbers. So that way it provides a perfect habitat for a very diverse amount of fungi to grow and call our forest home. So it's, it's, it's pretty, we're we're pretty lucky in that aspect. Gotcha. And is that just because, you know, you talked about the mountain ranges, like the Cascades and the coast ranges going north to south. Is that they, you know, the the rain can come in and kind of just capture, uh, you know, the, the mountains kind of capture all of that precipitation. And so it's a, it gets very humid and, and wet, and that's just the the, the habitat that uh, these mm-hmm. mushrooms like so much? Yeah, they really like that rainforest type of habitat that we have, especially in the coast range and and on the west-facing slope of the Cascade Range. It's just, you know, like you said, it captures a lot of moisture, and it's it allows for a lot of diverse species, and it just creates the perfect habitat for you know, uh, a diverse population of fungi. So it's yeah. just one of those perfect kind of conditions, perfect, just perfect situation. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, Oregon has so many different forest types. You know, there's clear cut forest, there is old growth forest, there's, you know, every age in between. Do you find that mushrooms, the different mushrooms favor the the different types of forest types? Or are you going to have the most success in like, you know, more mature forests typically or old growth forests compared to, you know, younger and, you know, maybe more recently cut forests? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, predominantly, I'm looking for older forests. You know, something that's, you know, 80 plus years old. And typically, and I was told this by a forester, that um, our common dug firs, they grow about a foot a year. So you can kind of generally gauge the age of a forest by roughly, you know, estimating the heights of the trees. 
So that'll give you a kind of a rough ballpark estimation of, you know, the age of the forest. So you're looking for older forests, especially if it's, you know, has old growth stumps, mossy, you know, lots of good, a good soft duff layer that tends to uh, produce a really um, large amount of mushrooms, especially edible mushrooms like chanterelles. I will find them growing around old growth stumps. Like if I see an old growth stump in a wood, I'm pretty much guaranteed I'm going to find a chanterelle or, or multiple growing around it. So I'm always look, keeping an eye out for those. However, if you're targeting things like truffles, you want the dense young plantations of conifers where, you know, there's just nothing but pine needles on the floor or, you know, fir needles and, you know, nothing else. And that's going to be your, your truffle territories. And you're not, and you'll find some other kind of mushrooms growing there, but it's going to be only a handful of species compared to, you know, a, a more diverse forest, an older forest, a more mature forest. Gotcha. Well, you know, I wrote a story last year after the Labor Day fires. One of the things that became kind of controversial was the idea of the closures and them not allowing people to go out and get some of the fire morels that you mentioned earlier. But one of the things that grabbed me about that was the science of the mushrooms. And specifically, fire morels are a specific type of mushroom that only, you know, fruits after a wildfire. Basically, fire morels can live in the soil for decades, you know, decomposing organic matter and nutrients, but never fruiting above the surface. But after a fire, the burn releases this flush of minerals into the upper soil. Organisms are killed by the heat. So this becomes kind of the fire morels time to shine. They take advantage of this and kind of colonize these up layers in just crazy amounts, which to me, was so fascinating. It almost suggests like this devious type of intelligence. So do you have any other interesting stories about how species of mushrooms kind of work in the wild or just like creative things that, that they do that have stuck out to you in, in your study of this? Oh, yeah. We have this really, really cool edible mushroom that grows in Oregon. It's called the uh, Hypomyces lactiflorum. Uh, the common name is the lobster mushroom. It's this bright orange mushroom you know it's like the color of you know freshly cooked shellfish you know lobster or crab it gets that nice bright orange color and it kind of has seafood like flavor and what's really cool and interesting about this mushroom is that it starts out as a completely different mushroom that it and then it's parasitized by the hypomyces fungi which is an ascomycete and it takes over this mushroom and take and turns it from something that's, you know, a, a not edible mushroom in its original form where it has some like gastrointestinal irritants. And it'll convert that and change it into something that's a delicious edible that's perfectly okay to eat. And it's, you know, one of the first mushrooms you can really find in the fall. Wow. That's that's really bizarre. That almost sounds like one of those horror movies where there's like a person and then an alien comes down and like switches their whole biology into something else. Wow. That's really that's that's pretty bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> <laughs> Our lob, did they actually you, you mentioned uh, so they actually have a seafood taste. I've, I've never had a lobster mushroom like they actually like what do they, they taste like actual lobster like what do they actually taste like 
you know, it kind of has, you know, a general kind of a seafood flavor to it. A lot of people will make a lobster bisque with it. And, um, I, you know, it, it's a very dense, like, mushroom. It's almost like eating a raw potato. So I tend to like to puree it and then mix it in with sauces and soups when I cook it. So that way it, you get the flavor and you don't have that kind of a crunchy texture that some people don't particularly care for wow so not only is it like look like a lobster mushroom but it's even got like a kind of lobster shell to it that's (laughs) that's (laughs) that's pretty interesting all right cool i'm sure we could probably talk about all the all the weird stuff going on with mushrooms for a while but you know we do want to focus on you know helping people you know get started as far as getting out in the forest for themselves so jumping back into the idea of hunting I guess the first thing we should cover is seasons, like the time that you want to go out. So, so Jordan, what are the best seasons for finding mushrooms generally? And what are you looking for from the weather? Yeah, the prime season is fall and winter in Oregon. And then spring after the snow melts before it gets too hot out. But uh, typically, I'm looking for humidity uh, and rain. Those are the big two big things that mushrooms require to fruit. Uh, mushrooms are approximately 90% water. So they're very, they require actually a, a high amount of water to produce uh, fruiting bodies. So typically I will start looking after we get like our fir- first good soaking rain in the fall. And um, usually the first things to come up are like the lobster mushrooms, like I was just talking about, and uh, rainbow chanterelles. They typically are the first chanterelles to pop, and they do, and they're usually like really close to the coast range where you're getting a lot more of that, you know, wet fog coming out of the ocean and and coming into the 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 trees and the forests along the coast there and just soaking it. Gotcha. So, you know, the, you mentioned that it's kind of starts in the fall with those first rains. And that's that's kind of the time that I've done it. That's usually when I'm looking for chanterelles. Mm-hmm. It's after it's been dry for a while, then that rain comes in and then you're kind of starting to poke around and look. As you get deeper into winter, you know, right now we're, you know, heading into kind of the dog days of November. Do the type of mushrooms that you're looking for sort of shift as it gets into that really saturated November, December, January season? Like what kind of stuff can you find as as it gets later and then into spring? Yeah, once it gets later into the winter, um, I will commonly find um, certain species of mushrooms after we start getting our first freezes. So certain things like the hedgehog mushrooms, they seem to just really pop after the first freeze the golden chanterelles and all those start to kind of fade due to the colder weather. We'll get another type of chanterelle that will fruit and it's called the yellow foot and it's a winter chanterelle and it's a lot, it looks a lot different than the regular chanterelle and it has some lookalikes that are non-edible, but uh, once you, you know, learn to identify it properly, it's pretty easy to tell the, the non-edibles apart. And, you can find, and I find these 
often, you know, into January, February with, you know, little dustings of snow on them and they're still perfectly fine. Gotcha. So we've got, you know, the chanterelles early in the season, some lobster mushrooms, and then, you know, the different species in the winter. And then as you get into spring, uh, that starts to get into morel season, right? So you have Mm -hmm. a whole different set of mushrooms that you're looking for as you get into spring, right? Yeah. Once we get into spring, um, I start researching forest fires. So I'll look on online there's forest fire maps these are great you know it, you can it shows you all the places that have burned you know you can figure out whether it's on public land or private land and and if it's open or closed that's the big thing you don't want to be getting a huge ticket like a lot of people did in the uh Saniam and willamette <laughs> national forest so um definitely you want to make sure it's it's open <laughs> but uh yeah as, as soon as i find a fire that's a good size it's in a good forest you know it's got slopes that are facing the right direction you know typically i, I look for northern facing slopes they hold more water they'll stay cooler longer into this into the spring and i do a lot better you know uh, with morels when i when you do your research and then you also get into spring porcinis. You know, one of my best days ever was with my good friend, Autumn England, and my business partner. Her and her husband uh, accompanied me on a morel trip up to central Oregon near Sisters. And we just, we hit it big. We got into them just thick. We were filling our baskets. You know, we picked up some personal use permits from the Deschutes National Forest so we could harvest as many as we wanted. And... And when we went back to our vehicles to unload, we noticed a bunch of porcinis growing on the other side of the road in some in the unburned forest. So then we loaded up on porcinis too. So we came back with, you know, several pounds of morels and several pounds of porcinis. And we were just set for years, you know, you'd run the dehydrator for a few days and <laughs> good to go. <laughs> That, that sounds like a pretty good day. Now, you're obviously a very educated guy, have, have spent a lot of time researching this, but for people that don't know about it, it can be intimidating because, you know, that fear is always going to, you're going to go out there and, and eat like a poisonous mushroom or something like that. So when, when you got into it and when you suggest other people getting into it, where do you suggest that they go to get a good education, not only for identifying mushrooms, but for knowing when to go out and stuff like that? Like, what would you suggest that people do if they want to get into this, but they have pretty limited knowledge at this point? Yeah, one of the first things I recommend is getting a a pocket ID book. There's a couple out there that are really, really good. Um, And there's two that I always carry with me when I'm out mushrooming, uh, the first one is all, all the rain promises and more. And that's by David Aurora. And it's a very good book. It has a, a really easy to follow keys for, to, to point you in the right direction on how to identify the mushrooms you're looking at and especially edible mushrooms. And then, um, the second one is mushrooms of Mary's peak and vicinity, the revised and expanded edition and that's by Stephen E. Carpenter. This one's great because it it fills in a lot of blanks that the, all the rain promises and more doesn't have. So they kind of really complement each other very well. And that's really a good way to get you started on on identifying and kind of learning about mushrooms and getting a, 
uh, a handle of the terminology, you know, um, learning mushrooms, it's kind of like learning a second language in a way, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of ter different terminology you're not used to. Uh, most of the names are in Latin. And so it's kind of like learning the second language that way. You mentioned joining uh, early on, you joined the Willamette Valley Mushroom Society, and now you do some some even guided trips for them. So what does um, a group like that bring to the table? Like wh what is what does it offer if you if you join up with a, with a group like that? Joining a mushroom club is really one of the best ways to further, you know, your education and especially to you know speed it up. You know, one of the first things, you know, when I got into mushrooms, I was too scared to eat anything that I harvested out in the wild, you know. And so even though I knew these were chanterelles, I, I wouldn't eat them because I just wasn't sure. And and once I joined that mushroom club, it, it gave me the confidence that, you know, this is a chanterelle or, or this is a hedgehog or, you know, this is a morel. You know, it gave me that confidence that what I'm IDing is correct. And I had people that you know, could help me and, and further my education. And so I went from, you know, that nervous, you know, I'm too afraid to eat these mushrooms that I'm finding to, oh, I, I'm confident that what I'm finding is accurate and, and, you know, being able to enjoy eating these mushrooms without that fear. It's, you know. <laughs> yeah. So when you're in um, a meeting and I, I know that there's a handful of, of mushroom clubs that, you know, are in different locations typically, but, you know, are you going to, to meetings and then going out in the field together? Like, does it become kind of a communal experience? Yeah. Um, typically, you know, with the Willamette Valley Mushroom Society, um, I'm on that I'm a member of, uh, we run um, forays. So, you know, you can sign up for forays and, and these are like for like smaller scale forays where we'll take, you know, a smaller group of people out and it'll be more of a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, learn about mushroom, get real mushrooms and get, you know, that education. And then we have these big group formats where any member is welcome to show up. We'll point you in a direction to go pick mushrooms and, you know, you can come back, we'll ID everything. And then um, we do meetings. Um, we do right now it's online on Zoom. We typically have a speaker presenting on some topic on fungi. And then um, when we can, we want to start holding our potlucks again, but that's kind of difficult right now. That's definitely sure. one of the highlights of joining a mushroom club. Uh, we're all essentially foodies and we love to eat <laughs> and, ex and experiment with dishes. So uh, the potlucks are always a highlight. They're just, I've never had a bad dish. It's always fun seeing these creative and inventive ways people add these mushrooms to dishes. And that's definitely one of the, one of the things that all of our members really, really, you know, love about, the mushroom society. Yeah, well, I can see the appeal of that. I mean, I think the only way I've ever cooked <laughs> chanterelles is just, you know, frying them up with uh, butter and garlic and, you know, throwing them in some pasta. So I'd, <laughs> I would love to, you know, see that diversity and see how many different ways people go with actually preparing mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's always great, you know, especially seeing, you know, we, we require people if they bring a dish to have a recipe card. So it's always in it's always awesome to kind of see what people are using and the different ingredients and whatnot. But, uh, you know, if you're interested in joining a mushroom club, we have, like you said, we have several in Oregon, um, in the Salem area, 
that's where the Willamette Valley Mushroom Society is based out of. And we foray, you know, in the Cascade Range, Central Oregon, the Coast Range. And um, so it's a good way to meet up with people and to learn about mushrooms. And then in the Eugene area, there's the Cascade Mycological Society. They're also an awesome club. They're really good. Um, I hear nothing about nothing but great things about them. And they they run on a similar kind of uh, similar similarly to us at the Willamette Valley Mushroom Society. They host forays. They do online meetings. They have presenters and speakers and things like that. Yeah, you know these the groups that specialize in this kind of stuff are so important. You know, I've been doing this job outdoor reporting for fifteen years, and it always strikes me every time people want to get into something there's always a really good group for it. Like if you want to do whitewater kayaking, like there's a group for that. If you want to do rock climbing, there's a group for that, like cross country skiing, everything. And I feel like younger people today, not to sound like an old man or something like that, but are, (laughs) are weary sometimes about joining up with these groups. But if you want to learn to do it right, these groups are just, it's just the, the way to go for sure. Well, let's jump into equipment a little bit. So when you head out in the field, you know, we, we've talked about the season to get out there, um, some some area to consider, some mushrooms to target. You got your book. You got some knowledge. What about the equipment? What are you putting in your pack and what are you bringing into the field? Yeah, my uh, go to equipment when I go out and harvest mushrooms, uh, the, the most important thing is my collection basket. <laughs> you want to have something to put your mushrooms in. And I have a, a collection basket made from basket weavers out of Ghana and I got it from the free from a free trade store it's a great basket and you know a lot of the money is going back to these villagers in Ghana to help support them so you know it's a so you're not only buying an essential piece of equipment but you're also supporting you know some people out there so that's a good thing to do and then uh the second thing I bring brushes some paint brushes some nice clean ones I and to clean your mushrooms off before you put them in your basket. You know, it saves you a ton of time when you come home, when you're prepping your mushrooms to cook, if they're already fairly clean. And then um, I bring wax paper bags. It's really important to keep the different species of mushrooms separated. You, in case you do accidentally harvest uh, a non-edible, and it's not contaminating all your mushrooms. It's only, you know, contaminating that one bag. So you don't have to throw away everything. You only have to throw away a little bit. Gotcha. And, um, you know, one thing I hear that was stressing me when I went out and did chanterelle hunting was that we want to have a good knife, right? Because, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe I'm wrong on this, but you want to you want to cut them. You don't want to pull up, you know, the root systems and stuff like that. So it's important to have a good knife, correct? Yes, a good sharp knife. And and I will usually have two knives. I have one that's just for cutting edible mushrooms and then I have one if I, you know, want to collect something to take home and research, I have a separate knife for that so I don't accidentally, you know, get toxins on one knife and transfer it to a good mushroom. And there is some, you know, you know, don't pull the mushroom out, but, you know, cut it from the floor. I haven't seen any evidence to say that it's detrimental, but it's definitely more respectful to the forest. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So we've got, uh, you know, your harvesting bag, you've got those wax paper things, you've got knives. Um, 
you know, do you bring out a GPS and stuff like that? Because I, I wanted to get into safety a little bit because every year, especially during, you know, peak mushroom season, usually in the fall, I write a lot of stories about mushroom hunters that get lost in the woods, sometimes for days and end up needing needing rescue. So that has to be an important part of the equation. So how do you advise people consider that? Like having, is it having a handheld GPS, like a, a spot tracker? Uh, what's the best way to get out in the forest and, and not lose your way and, you know, end up in, in the headline of a, of a news story? Yes, yes, this is a, a very important topic. I mean, I, I just read an article the other day about an 80-year-old woman out of Corvallis who went up into the coast range to pick mushrooms and spent a night in the woods. And, you know, it's definitely, it's happens a lot. So um, I carry essentially two ways I can track myself in the forest. I have an app on my phone. It's called on X, like X marks the spot. It's a hunting app and uh, it's, it's a great app. You can download offline maps of the areas you're going to go to. So even if you don't have signal, you can still access the maps and navigate yourself. And, um, and then I also carry my Garmin uh, handheld GPS, a satellite GPS. So I always have two ways I can get myself out. Yeah, and that seems that seems important. You know, I I write so many stories about people getting lost that I've I've become pretty paranoid. And kind of like you, you know, I usually got the Forest Service map. Uh, I've got the cell phone, and then I have an extra GPS just on top of that, uh, just to make sure that there's no stories about outdoor reporters needing to get rescued <laughs> from the outdoors because that, that would that would be no good. And I assume yeah. probably the same for you. Um, let's see. All right, permits. Now we mentioned this a little bit, um, but I want to dive into it a little bit. Um, typically in national forests, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're allowed to harvest one gallon for personal use. Anything beyond that, and you usually have to get uh, a permit of some some type, but can you break that down a little bit? You know, what, you know, which kind of what you need to know about the red tape, you know, state land versus federal land and things like that? Yeah, definitely uh, knowing before you go out in the field to pick mushrooms is very important. You know, you definitely don't want to get a ticket <laughs> being out in the woods, you know, trying to have fun and you end up coming back with a ticket instead of a basket of mushrooms. Typically, the forests west of the Cascades, you know, you can collect about a gallon of mushrooms without a permit. You can pick up a free uh, personal use permit, which will allow you to harvest more than that you know, pretty much unlimited. Most forests will allow that. Um, some will charge a fee. Like if you get over into central and eastern Oregon, you know, you can, you have to get a permit, a personal use permit. It's free. And then um, there's also, you know, they'll have some fees. So if you want to pay like $20, you can get a little bit better permit and it'll allow you to kind of pick as much as you want. Yeah, but it varies. You know, one of the things that people, especially people who are new to Oregon, have trouble figuring out is how many different land management agencies there are just kind of stacked right next to each other. You'll have Oregon Department of Forestry land here and then Forest Service land there and then BLM land there. So when you're doing it, do you typically look like make a plan like I'm going to go here? OK, this is this is Willamette National Forest here's what's allowed. Here's where I would get the permit. Like, is that kind of your method for going about it? Yeah. And each forest, like the Willamette national forest, or let's, let's go with the Seuss law. The Seuss law national forest 
it has several um, districts in it. And so you can't just get one permit for the whole forest. You have to figure out what district the area you're going to is in. And then you have to get a permit for that district. So you, you really want to be, <laughs> you really want to, you know, get online, check up with that forest that you're going to. Like if you know it's the national forest, look up that national forest, hop on their website. They have a link for uh, forest products and in there they'll have information on harvesting mushrooms. So it'll tell you exactly what you need to know to be able to go pick mushrooms in, in their forests. And that's, and that's pretty much what I always do before I go. I always check. They're always changing things around, yeah. especially with COVID times. Like it's, it seems like it's constantly changing. So, and I think you can never go wrong with making some phone calls to mm-hmm. those district offices because I got into a situation where I had no idea what was going on. I was headed out to the Drift Creek Wilderness in the Sayuslaw that you're talking about. I knew there were chanterelles out there, but it's a wilderness area. And I couldn't find a great answer on whether you were allowed to harvest chanterelles from a wilderness area or not. So I made a bunch of phone calls. It actually took quite a while for them to decide and get a good answer to me. But, you know, you got to make those. I, I just feel like making those phone calls rather than kind of searching around because you can find bad information online sometimes, too. So I, I always encourage people just make those phone calls. Then, you know, for sure. Yeah, definitely. If you talk to someone there and they give you wrong information, you know, then at least you you have, you know, something you can take to court if you get in trouble. <laughs> well, so-and-so told me. Yeah, you, you got deniability. Maybe you got to record those conversations. Yeah. Too. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, Jordan is going to talk generally, but not specifically, about some locations and seasons for actually getting out there. That's when we return. I'm Andy Geisler. I'm a forester at the American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Like you, I love the outdoors. On many days, the forest is my office. I work on the ground with public lands agencies on good forest management projects. Forest management helps achieve important conservation goals while providing sustainable timber. Science-based forestry helps improve wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, clean air and water. And it's essential to providing renewable, climate-friendly wood products. Learn more about us at amforest.org. All right, our newest sponsor is Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean beach, ancient forest, and a shocking number of beautiful places you might never have heard of, all centered around towns like Manzanita, Pacific City, and Tillamook. This is a beautiful area to visit, and the best way to plan a trip here is by looking at their newly created trails and recreation map. The map features 800 different sites from campgrounds to beaches to hiking trails. My favorite thing about the map is that it breaks down activities into 13 categories. So say you're looking for a campsite. Just click on the drop down menu and 22 different campsites appear. And you can get information on each one. If you're looking for a hike or a way to get on the water, the map has 40 different trails and 48 boat ramps all laid out on an easy to navigate digital map. To find the map and get started, visit TillamookCoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. All right, welcome back. 
Okay, Jordan, I know that it would be sacrilegious to give away your honey holes for finding mushrooms, and I would never ask you to do that. But can we talk generally about a few mushrooms and the best times and locations to get out there? Since, you know, we talked quite a lot about, you know, the Pacific Golden Chanterelle, Oregon State Mushroom. Why don't we start there? What's the what's the season and location that, that you're going to go out and try to find those chanterelles? Yeah, um, the best season for picking chanterelles is typically in, you know, the fall months when you're getting into November. Mushroom seasons will start at a higher elevations. So typically I'll start at the higher elevations because they're getting more rain and more moisture and the temperatures are a little bit more uh, proper and start to work my way down to lower elevations and one of the best places especially getting started to go is uh, state parks there's a ton of state parks all all around in our forests from the coast range all the way into the cascades and most of these parks have hiking trails and they have very well maintained forests and things like that so that's a good starting place to really get out there and start exploring mushrooms. You know, it's generally, you know, easy to navigate to. And then um, another ways you can really get into it is especially finding mushrooms and, and finding spots to go is just get out there, drive some, drive some of those forest service roads, you know, start looking for those older forests and, and get out there and, and, put feet on the ground you know you don't you don't you're not going to find anything from the the driver's seat of your vehicle so you know spending that time out in the woods i mean i there's oftentimes i will make multiple trips trying to find a spot before i find one that really pays out but once you find that spot you can keep going back to it every year it's gonna you know you know where those mushrooms are and then you start to build up you know more and more locations and and you're like, okay, this spot tends to produce these mushrooms during, you know, this time of year. And then this spot will produce, you know, a different type of mushroom. And so you, you start to really familiar, familiarize yourself with the seasonality, which honestly is kind of frustrating with climate change. It's been fluctuating a lot. You know, it's been hard mm-hmm. to really peg down with certainty. Okay, this these mushrooms are going to show up in this month. It, you know, last last year it seems like everything was a month late. So, mm-hmm. you know, it it, it you really got to pay attention to the weather too, and it's just. But once you kind of dial in all these things, it's it becomes second nature. You know, you're not really you don't really have to think about it. You're just like, oh, it's it's perfect conditions. It's time to get out there. And one thing that I've I've heard about chanterelles that has seemed to be true is that if you find one there's usually more nearby. And I'm curious if that applies to pretty much all types of mushrooms. So with hedgehogs, for example, you know, if you find one, are you, should you kind of like canvas that whole area pretty closely and you you might find a lot more? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, Especially with hedgehogs, I find that they like to grow in kind of like a line. So, and it'll be kind of, and it might, you know, break up and then you find it, you know, 20 30 feet farther in the forest but it's always good to kind of once you find an edible mushroom to just slowly kind of circle the area and see if you can identify more um Mm -hmm. sometimes and they won't even break the the forest floor the duff they'll be they'll be mushrooms 
So there'll be these little humps in, of duff in the soil or on the surface, and you just kind of scrape that away, and then there'll be this really nice, you know, mushroom underneath there. So it's just one of those, you know, you gotta you gotta dial your eye in. You kind of gotta familiarize yourself with it. You know, I've been in areas where, you know, I've seen people, I've seen evidence of people picking. And I still do really well because I'm finding the ones that they missed. Like searching for agates on the beach. You got to kind of develop your your eyes to, to, to pick it out. Um, what about springtime? You know, we, we've t- kind of talked about the seasonality and stuff like that. But when you're getting into, into morel season um, and maybe any other ones in, in the spring, you know, are they tougher to find? Like, what what are you looking for on morels? You know, are, are you looking the, the same kind of terrain as chanterelles, which would be, you know, the, the coast range, you know, after big rain? Um, are you waiting for the sunshine? When, when do morels become, you know, something to target? Yeah, for morels, um, usually around April is is when we start seeing them. And I start looking for them at the low low elevations and then as we start to warm up i'll start heading up to higher and higher elevations as i search um really with morels um finding naturals it's that can be tough if you don't have like a print access to a perennial patch like an old apple orchard or something like that if you're just going up in the woods um it, they can be few and far between it, and even if you're in the prime, prime habitat to finding them. So I typically will focus on burn morels. I'm genuinely curious about this because I wrote a pretty long story last year about frustrations in the mushroom hunting world because of the, you know, just vast, vast closures from, from the Labor Day fires. Um, what do you find as far as those areas actually being open. It seems like it's all over the map. Some forests, you know, are reopening, you know, right after a fire. Some stay locked down for years. So are you just doing your research? Is is there any like, you know, frustrations that you, that you've come across and other mushroom hunters have come across with, with the closures that just seem so big these days? Yeah. Getting access to, to these forests that have have burned has been really frustrating. Um, It seems like the forests that burn in central and eastern Oregon, they have those forests opened up real quick and allow people back into there versus, you know, the forest fires in the Sandy M Canyon there, they still have most of the burn areas closed from public access. And, and it's kind of hard to, you know, they say it's for our safety. I can (laughs) understand that to a point, but, uh, you know, healthy trees fall over in the woods too, and people don't really get hit by them very often. So (laughs) it's just kind of one of those frustrating things. Yeah. Well, I don't want to, you know, speak too much out of turn, but I've written a lot about this and there's, you know, you could make it a case. They don't shut down the forest during, you know, giant windstorms. Typically they don't shut, you know, they don't disallow whitewater kayaking or mountain climbing, which are very, very risky activities. Um, and yet, man, as soon as like a, a forest is burned at all, um, it just becomes like treacherous, super dangerous, can't go there at all. And I don't know, I feel like that's something we're going to get sorted out over coming years, just because in the Western Oregon, you know, big wildfires like this are sort of a new thing for us. And I feel like we're still sort of kind of feeling our way 
as to how we're going to treat that. So I don't know. Hopefully we'll get a little better access in the future because we're kind of missing out on some pretty amazing picking. Yeah, it's been frustrating. Uh, I'm also a member of a fungi study group. And we were trying to get access to the Willamette National Forest to do a, a research project on the recovery of fungi after a forest fire. And we were going to collect just tons of data. We have access to genetic sequencing through the Fungal Diversity Survey. And so we were going to just go to town doing this genetic researching and all that. And they wouldn't even give us access. <laughs> so that you can't you can't even do science out there um, yeah <laughs> well yeah like i said i i feel like it's going to be something that gets figured out a little bit more in the future uh hopefully they'll consider a little bit more access but uh the last thing i wanted to kind of wrap up with here was uh cooking you know you mentioned that you know there's a million ways to go you mentioned going to the potlucks which just sound delectable um, but do you have a favorite way? So after you've you know harvested a bunch of uh, chanterelles or a bunch of hedgehogs or, or morels, you know, do you bring them home and kind of allow them to dry off and use them? Do you you mentioned dehydrating them for future use, or how how do you how do you treat the the mushrooms once once you get them home to prepare them for cooking? Yeah, great question. Um, a lot of people you know struggle to figure out what to do with the mushrooms once they get them home. So. The first thing I typically do with like things like chanterelles is I clean them off. I put them under, you know, the sink. I put them in the sink, rinse them off, clean all the dirt and everything off them, get them as clean as I can. Then I'll cut them up and I'll dry saute them until all the liquid is out of the mushrooms and I've cooked that off. And then you can simply just toss, you know, portions in baggies and toss them in your freezer. And chanterelles, you can keep like that in your freezer for several months and they'll be perfectly fine. You just pull out a bag when you want to use them and they're good to go. Um, but other mushrooms like um, the morel and porcini, these are really, really like the best way to preserve these is to dehydrate them. It'll also um, really bring out and the flavors of the mushroom. So you get that really get a lot more of that meaty savory flavor from the morels and you get a lot more of that kind of that nutty you know flavor from the porcini so it really concentrates those flavors and brings them out and these mushrooms rehydrate excellent you know uh, I could cook up a dish with um, morels that had been dehydrated and rehydrated and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference in texture between a fresh one and a rehydrated so and the flavor just keeps for a long time. And, mm. and so that's my preferred method for those types of mushrooms. And that typically like the dry sauteing um, is the way to go to preserve your mushrooms for, you know, so they don't go bad before you can get to them in your refrigerator. A real quick question. What, what is dry, dry sauteing? Uh, uh, is that putting them in a pan under like low heat or what do you, what do you, what do you actually mean there? Yeah, dry saute, it means you're just putting the mushrooms in the pan. You're not adding any butter. You're not adding any oil, no seasonings, just the mushrooms in the pan. And under about, you know, medium heat. Um, mushrooms, gotcha. the cell wall is made from keratin, which is, you know, like what our fingernails and, and hair is made out of. So you really want to cook mushrooms for a decent amount of time to help break that down. So that way your body can 
digest, properly digest it and get all the nutrients out of it that it can. Gotcha. Okay. Well, finally here, we, we've been talking for about an hour. I bet we could go for another two hours if we wanted to, but you mentioned uh, you're starting a, a mushroom cultivation and fungi genetic sequencing business. So that, that sounds really interesting. What are you actually doing there and what, what are you hoping that that becomes? Yeah. Um, with the cultivation business, um, you know, it's, it's something that I, you know, it, it's, I'm hoping to fund the research aspect <laughs> behind, you know, there's, there's so much about fungi that we don't know. And there's just so many, op so many opportunities for citizen scientists to help, you know, further this field along. And with mushrooms, that is very true. There's so much contribution by citizen scientists that it's greatly increased our knowledge in the field of fungi. We want to be able to, you know, contribute more. One of the ways to do that is by through cultivation and edible mushrooms and cultivating mushrooms. It's just, you know, it's kind of like the next step <laughs> when people who are hooked on, you know, fungi who are really into it and passionate about it. It just, it's, it's that inevitable next step. And so is that actually possible? Like, you know, I've got a little like patch of property, you know, out, not in the mountains, but it's pretty wet out there. It's sort of close to the foothills. Like, can you actually grow edible mushrooms like in your, in your yard? Like, is that actually a thing? Could I grow some chanterelles if I wanted to? Well, chanterelles, maybe not uh, that. We haven't quite figured out how to uh, grow those uh, commercially and control controlled conditions but you could do like shiitake logs um you could do like lion's mane logs you can inoculate logs and then stick them in a shady part of your property mm -hmm. and then they'll fruit mushrooms naturally throughout the year it's a good way you know to to add a little bit more diversity to your table yeah yeah growing mushrooms at home can be easy and it's very rewarding you know it's it's really fascinating watching that mushroom go from a little tiny pin to, you know, the full adult version when it's ready to harvest. And there's just, you know, going Easter egg hunting in a way, you know, it's exciting. You know, you get to, to go out there and, and pick these mushrooms that you grow. And, and then, it, you know, it gives you a lot more options too for, for what you can do with them and, and use them for. There's a lot of great medicinal mushrooms out there that can, sure. and can really have amazing health benefits like the turkey tail mushrooms, great anti-cancer uh, mushroom there's lion's mane for memory it's really good for that and you know, reishi for your kind of your your central nervous system and circulatory system and so there's a lot of things you can do to to not just only add some extra food to your table but to increase your health and wellness too well, that's great. I'm. I feel like I'm gonna check that out at some point, especially the one that helps with memory, because my memory sucks pretty badly. So I appreciate you giving me a heads up. Uh, well, very cool, Jordan. Thanks so much for joining us today to talk about so many different aspects of mushroom hunting and the science and the cultivation. So once again, Jordan is an expert guide with the Willamette Valley Mushroom Society and the owner of Lone Oak Micro Farms in Salem. Jordan, thanks again for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Zach. Well, that's all the time we have left in today's show. We hope this gave you some insight into the world of mushroom hunting in Oregon. 
If you like what you heard, check out our catalog of what is now over 50 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesandjournal.com slash explore. You can also find us at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for our future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast, a great place to plan your outdoor adventure with the help of their new recreation map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us on the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.